Welcome back to Toronto Today. Steve Simmons in for Wheeler Nation here on TSN 1050 Radio. And this segment is brought to you by Lease Busters. Lease Busters will get you out of your car today. It's as easy as pie, a piece of cake. I can say that because I've actually bought some Lease Busters cars over the years, to be honest. Avoid penalties and early termination fees. Visit LeaseBusters.com. I don't know how closely you're following the Boston Red Sox this season in this sort of miserable Blue Jay year, uh, but the Red Sox are doing something that maybe has never been done before, at least in the history of their franchise, and they are winning games at a record pace that we haven't seen before. And if they continue, if they play 500 baseball. Between now and the end of the season, if my math is correct, and math and me don't always get along, um, they will win more games than the Red Sox have ever won before. And it's 72 years, I believe, since this team won 100 games. Almost by accident, they'll win 100 games uh, this season. And I saw a Bill Belichick quote, actually, on Twitter a few minutes ago, where he's talking about how impressed he is with the intensity of the Red Sox and how they play the game. And if somebody like that is saying it, well, you just know it happens to be true. Red Sox in Toronto for a three-game series starting today. My old friend Gordon Eads joins us. Gordon's covered the Red Sox for a million years and now is a Red Sox historian. Good afternoon, Gord. <laughs> hey, Steve, I guess, I guess we could start counting in the millions, right? Well, it depends on, you know, how you view, you know, how you, is it dog years? Is it real years? You know? There you go. The long, Los Angeles Kings was a long time ago. Oh, my goodness. That's like three lifetimes ago. You know, triple crown line, Marcel Dion, you know, fabulous. Good yeah, memory, so, Steve. Back in the Ted Williams days, as I say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always, you know, you know, when now in my role as historian, and and somebody will uh, call me and they'll ask about a game that Tris Speaker played in, or 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 Cy Young, and they'll ask me, "Did you cover that game?" And I go, "Come on, man, I haven't been around that long." Yeah, probably Bo- <laughs> Bob Ryan was probably there doing that before you. There you so. go. Yeah, there you go. Let me let me ask you about this team because. It's so impressive to watch. There's so many different parts. So many of the players are homegrown. What impresses you the most about this? Well, I, I think it, it's just the incredible consistency, Steve, that really began in, in spring training. I mean, nobody, nobody puts any, any uh, weight on, on spring training results, but the reality is that we, we hire Alex Cora as manager. Uh, the team wins 22 games in spring training. And then 17 out of their first 19 in the regular season, and you think, okay, they're going to come back to, down to earth uh, sooner than later. And, and essentially, they haven't. Uh, I mean, this is astonishing uh, uh, what's going on. You know it's a historic year when, when you're on a pace to win more games uh, than you ever have. And the year you won 105 was the year Fenway Park opened. That was 1912. Uh, so uh, you know, it's just uh, they've just been hitting on on in, in every facet of the game. You know, they've been getting the pitching, they've been getting the the bullpen, they've been uh, playing outstanding defense, and and they're hitting with 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 two legitimate MVP candidates and 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 Mookie Betts and and. Uh, uh, J.D. Martinez, and and we're at a point right now where it seems like 
uh, Alex Cora can't do any wrong. Uh, I'll give you one great example from this weekend sweep over the Yankees. So first game, the Thursday night, Steve Pierce hits three home runs. Now, Pierce is here only to generally to play and start against left-handers. Well, Cora says, I'm not going to bench a guy who had three home runs the night before. So he puts him in the starting lineup Friday, even though it's against a righty. And Pierce hits another home run. So now he's got four home runs in two games. And Alex benches him the next day. And the guy who plays in his place, Keith Moreland, hits a home run. I mean, it's just, uh, that's the way it's been going this season. And I'm not sure Pierce hit four home runs in two years in Toronto. So just, just I mean, I, I can tell you this. I mean, the, the man only had five games in his career uh, where he hit two home runs. I uh, never had a three-homer game. So, uh, uh, and, and I think he'd only made like a total of 11 starts in the three-hole in his career, and he's, and he's hitting in the three-hole for, for the Red Sox against the Yankees. I mean, go figure. And if you get a good quote out of him, you'll have gotten something that I never got. So credit, <laughs> credit to that. Um, yeah. Today's Mike Trout's birthday, and most people like to uh, assume, I guess is the right word, or just anoint Mike Trout as the best player in the American League, and the war numbers tend to tell you that. But if I'm voting MVP right now, I don't know how I don't vote Mookie Betts over Mike Trout. You know, I guess you and I still have a little old school in us, and, 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 I mean, I still feel that that uh, uh, how your team performs should be at least a factor in in the consideration of the MV, uh, MVP uh, balloting uh, because it isn't you're, you're not voting uh, player of the year and and if I mean if if Mike Trout was head and shoulders over Mookie in every category then I'd say okay you know I, I guess you got to give it to him but. They're they're not, uh, you know. Uh, Mookie's having a year that 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 compares very favorably to Trout, and uh, and he's doing it for for a team that uh, is well on its way to to winning a division. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, how do you penalize a guy uh, because his team's not very good? And that Andre Dawson, who is a beloved character uh, in Montreal, you know, won an MVP for a last place team, the Cubs, in in '87. Uh, I get it, but uh, I think when all things are being equal, uh, yeah, I, I think Mookie should uh, uh, should rank number one on, on a lot of people's ballots right now. So you look at this team and the number of wins they have, and you look at Houston and the number of wins they have, and you look at the Yankees with their injuries and still the number of wins they have and what Cleveland has. Do all these teams have all these wins because they're that great? Or because the rest of the league is that bad? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, on, on the eve of this series with the Yankees, Brian Cashman uh, was quoted as saying, geez, you know, I wonder what Boston's record would be if they, if they played us every day. You know, which was the implication being that the Red Sox had had uh, had beaten up on on poor teams, and then we go ahead and and, and sweep the Yankees. Um, obviously, uh, there are more bad teams this year. There's no question. And and what's funny is, you know, we talk about teams tanking, but two of the worst teams in the American League uh, this year, the Orioles and the Royals, they weren't even trying to tank, Steve. Uh, you know, the Orioles came into this season thinking they were going to compete. Not, uh, neither were the Jays. Are, are they 27 games behind the Red Sox right now? 
Yeah. They you know, thought so, that they were going to be an 85-86 win team. Right. So so uh, uh, I, I think it's, it, you know, there, there are times that, that you just have teams that, are, that have special seasons. And, and, I mean, Houston had a special season last year, and, and they're doing it again this year. And, you know, the, the thing that and, – and it's funny. I, I don't know if you, you follow me on Twitter, but uh, yeah, I got <laughs> a lot of response yesterday – when I suggested that, yeah, go ahead, people, celebrate this uh, sweep over the Yankees, but don't get too giddy. You know, things happen. And, and you know, that's a lesson I learned, I think, uh, my very first year of covering baseball, I, I, I was part of the uh, coverage of the Dodgers in 1982, right? So in September, they went seven in a row to go up three and a half games with 14 to play. And then lost eight in a row, six by one run, three in extra innings. Joe Morgan hits a home run off Terry Forster, and, and they lose the, the division race. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll come up with an example a little closer to home. Now, our old friend, Jimmy Williams, he had your Blue Jays up three and a half games with seven to go in 1987. And they lost their last seven. I was they in- scored a total of 16 runs. Uh, you know, I mean... Those memories don't go away, even though I know five years later the Blue Jays win the first of back-to-back World Series. But I was sent, uh, by the way, I was sent to the Dominican Republic that week to do features on the players on the Jays, <laughs> families, George Bell? George Bell and Tony Fernandez, and 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 and. Uh, I forget. Tommaso Garcia was yeah. he on that team? Nelson Liriano was the second baseman, and I remember oh going to visit gosh. his parents in Punta Cana, um, <laughs> and and I'd watch the game, and, and the bar, Blue Jays were hugely popular in Dominica. I'd watch the game in a bar at yeah. night, and they'd lose, and yeah. then they'd lose again, and, they, and these this was all for the playoff sections, the special playoff yeah. sections that never yeah. never came to be. Of never course. saw the light, light of print, right, yeah. Steve? You know, batting. So that ended up being batting practice, you know, for you. So, and, and the thing is, uh, you know, what people hear, I mean, a couple of things. You know, one, the Yankees that, that were swept this weekend, uh, they're not the same team without Aaron Judge and, and, and Sanchez. I mean, that, that's a given. And the other thing that, that you got to, two other factors that, that you need to keep in mind. And you would think that Red Sox fans would have no trouble doing so, given that in 1978 blew a 14-game lead to the Yankees um, over the last couple of months of the season. And, and in 2011, uh, had a nine-game lead uh, going into the last month of the season and went 7-20 and 20 and missed the playoffs. So, you know, the Red Sox are going to play the Yankees six times in the last 12 games of the regular season. Things can happen. And you also have to be concerned about, uh, every team has this concern, you know, the role that, that injuries are going to play. I mean, right now, Chris Sale is on the disabled list. Uh, we think it's minor. He's, he was an, originally going to uh, pitch against the Blue Jays. They pushed him back. Uh, uh, he's going to pitch this weekend against Baltimore. The assumption is he's fine. But what if he isn't? And, you know, I mean, Mookie Betts nearly got beaned the other day. Uh, Bogarts had a wrist injury. Devers and Kinsler are, are on the disabled list right now. So you, you always have to be concerned about uh, the role injuries could play to. I mean, does it look great? Sure. Uh, you know, like, like you mentioned, uh, the Red Sox can go play under 500 ball the rest of the way and, and, and finish with 100 wins, which is mind-boggling. 
But uh, you so know, before uh, letting you go, we're running out of time here. But before letting you go, quick, where is David Price and how is he fitting in? Well, you know, I think he's having. Uh, uh, Certainly a much better season than he did last year. I think the fact that, that he pitched as well as he did against the Yankees Sunday where, where that seemed to be the, the, uh, you know, the big question mark around, uh, uh, around prices, you know, whether he was trying to duck the Yankees and, and whether you know, he caved against the Yankees. Uh, you know, the Red Sox need Price to be pitching well. Uh, to go deep in October, and uh, uh, you know the, his last several starts have been very good, and I think he's going to be fine. I mean, you know, and you remember well that the the role he played for the Blue Jays down the stretch a couple of years ago. What was he nine and one for you guys? Ten and one. People are still uh, wearing his robes. Yeah, exactly, and everybody <laughs> was wearing his robes. So uh, uh, you know, he's he's a lightning rod for 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 controversy around here. Uh, but in the clubhouse, uh, I still think he's regarded as a, as a great teammate. And, and in the end, that's what counts the most. Thanks so much for this, Gord. Enjoy the Red, uh, Red Sox Blue Jays series and try not to be too hard on us. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thanks, brother. Good thanks. to catch up with you. All right. Bye-bye. You can follow Gordon Eads on Twitter at Gordon Eads, Red Sox historian, longtime Red Sox beat writer, Gord Eads. We come back, a little Johnny Manziel talk, as if we haven't had enough of that. Dave Naylor joins me here on Toronto Today. Welcome back to Toronto Today. Steve Simmons in for Wheeler Nation. And they must have got desperate in trying to find a host for today. You know, it's summertime and you're looking for people and it's like, okay, we'll try Wheeler, not there. We'll try McNamara, not there. We'll try MacArthur, not there. We'll try just about everybody, J. Lou, not there. Run through the entire list. Then they get to Simmons. So it's me here today talking to you. I'm enjoying it. I hope you are Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun here. And I don't know if you were watching Friday night. I'd love to see what the ratings were because I think they should be spectacular for consider, compared to a regular Friday night football game on TSN. Because it's the first time in a very, very long time where I said to myself, I know exactly what I'm doing tonight. I'm going home. I'm watching football. I'm watching Johnny Manziel. I don't care about the rest. And I was really fascinated to see, you know, whether um, whether we, you know, got a good glimpse of Johnny Manziel or or however it was. And uh, and I guess most of us were frankly horrified by what we saw. Um, he threw as often it seemed to the Hamilton Tiger Cats, the team he was in training camp with, as he did to his own team, the Montreal Alouettes, which may speak a little bit for how good the Alouettes receivers are and the, and the rest of it. Um, and he threw four interceptions in the first half, and he looked lost. But there were a few moments, there were a few seconds there where he gave you reason to think that this is worthwhile. He would make one of those plays on the run. He would make a, In fact, one of the interceptions he threw, he, he rolled out, and he got open, and he deked guys, and he, he kept moving around, and he underhanded the ball, sort of a la Doug Flutie, if you want to call it that, um, to the Alouettes running back who botched it and pushed, pushed it up in the air, and, and the ball was intercepted by Hamilton. Like, to me, that was potentially a great play for the, for the Alouettes that turned in. So all it's going to look like in the box score is an interception. And maybe this week he'll be better than last week, and maybe two weeks from now 
he'll be better than next week. So I'm going to turn to our friend Dave Naylor here, covers uh, football for TSN, the football insider on TSN, and get his views on where Manziel is, where he goes from here, whether he can be anything at all in the Canadian Football League. Dave Naylor joins us now. Good afternoon, Dave. Good to join you, Steve. Um, I just went through sort of my view of what happened Friday mm. night, and I saw a few things I kind of liked. Not many, but I saw a few things I kind of liked. I wonder what you saw. Well, I think that, you know, the headline is Johnny Menzel throws four picks in first half, you know, uh, Cats blowout, Al's. But let's, and again, I, I think Johnny Menzel was not great, understandably. But I, his team might have been worse. And let's just break down the 28 nothing end of the first quarter score, okay? The first one is an opening drive that Manziel has nothing to do with, right? The second one comes off his bad interception. The third uh, comes off a blocked punt. Again, he's got nothing to do with that. And the fourth comes off the play that you described where there was a, a kind of shovel pass to Terrell Sutton that he should have caught. So of the 28 nothing that happened before the end of the first quarter, you know, there's one that you can trace to the play of Johnny Manziel. You know, the others are the Ticat special team, Ticat defense, and Terrell Sutton unable to catch an easy ball. So, you know, that puts them in a tough situation. But, I, you know, I guess combined the fact that Manziel had been there for 12 days, it had four practices where he was taking first-team reps, and the Owls are a 1-17 team that led the league in – or lead, lead the league in points given up and are last in points scored. Um, you know, as the great Archie Manning once said to me, quarterbacks are not golfers and they're not tennis players. You know, they're, they're not out there by themselves. So – Look, I, I think it couldn't have gone much worse for him or the Alouettes, but you know that's an inexperienced quarterback playing on a bad team against a good defense. I, I hate to quote myself, but a line I used in the column on Sunday was, you know, he was he was unfortunate to have been playing for the Alouettes instead of against the Alouettes, and I think I that that goes to your point as to how bad this football team really is. Well, it is, and you know, this is one of those issues where also, you know, you you stand back and, and look at at you know the the, the team, and and they will go calendar year without winning a game at home, which is other than that weird win they had in actual. This is a team that's an I think Dave, we're having some we're having some problems with your phone here, so we're going to phone you back and see if we can get this technology working a little bit better. That, that's an excellent breakdown by Naylor on the, on those points because again, if you tune in and you, and you see how many points the Tie Cats have in the first half, you don't think you don't know that there was a block punt, you don't know that one of the interceptions came off a play that shouldn't have been an interception, you don't know that that. Those are how Hamilton Hamilton went on a drive the first time they had the ball. Um, so there's other factors involved here. What I'm at least somewhat hopeful for, I'm not hopeful for the Alouettes to get better overnight. They don't have good enough talent. I'm not sure they have good enough management. I'm not sure they have good enough coaching. Um, but I saw things, at least in how he moved, and I liked his attitude because we'd heard, we've heard so much about Manziel and his attitude and his big timing. I don't think we've seen a lot of that when he was in Hamilton. I don't think his post-game demeanor and his after the day, uh, day after, I thought, you know, really showed a guy that maybe you can grow with. And if the Alouettes do get better players and better coaches and, and all that, then there's a possibility. Not right now, but down the road. 
Dave Naylor rejoins us now. Your phone was a little wonky there. Hopefully it will be better now. How long do you think it will take Manziel and or the Alouettes to be presentable? I think it'll take probably a month, you know, until they're in a game where his offense can go potentially toe-to-toe with another. And, and again, I think that's a combination of his inexperience and, and their, you know, lack of talent around him. And, look, I, I, you know, th- this organization has been built in a very atypical way, you know, not going with a, a proven quarterback going into the season, spending a lot of money on defense, spending a lot of money on free agency. You know, that's not the typical – and bringing in a coach who's never coached in the CFL before. I mean, those are all very – against the grain kind of ideas of how to build a successful CFL team. And I would say until the Johnny Manziel trade, the Alouettes of 2018 looked exactly like what a lot of us imagined they might look like. And, you know, and, and I think it is, as I was saying just before I got caught up, I think it's too bad that Manziel wasn't able to get there at the start of the season so the Alouettes could develop him appropriately and not in what are, let's be honest, desperate circumstances, not just for the team in terms of the playoffs, but in terms of, you know, the management of that team, just because of their record, you've got to know that they, you know, they, they, I would think they don't have a lot of rope. So, look, I think, I think Manziel, with, you know, with a, as you mentioned, we saw some flashes. We can see where his skill set, his ability to innovate and sort of outthink the opposition could come into play. But he's going to have to work hard. They're going to have to be better. And I think the whole idea of playing him now is like, look, we know what we've got without him. We don't know what we've got with him in a month. And, you know, this is going to be a learning curve. This is like the preseason, unfortunately. August is going to be kind of like the preseason for Johnny Manziel, and we'll see where he is after Labor Day. Do they have one receiver there that you would say is a quality CFL receiver? I'd say B.J. Cunningham's a quality CFL receiver. Uh, I would say, you know, the one that's kind of curious is Darius Bowman, who didn't play in that game. But he had 1,700 yards and led the league two years ago. Uh, you know, he hasn't had a significant injury that I know of. He's had a, he had a nagging one last year. And, I mean, he signed a pretty decent free agent contract with Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the offseason, rejoining an offensive coordinator who he knew and a quarterback that he knew, and then they didn't throw him the ball. So and, you know, even, Darius, and even when they threw him the ball, he dropped it. And he dropped it. No, he wasn't very good either. He wasn't getting a lot of targets. And I don't know if Darius is one of those guys who, you know, when he's getting 8, 10 targets a game, he's zoned in, and when he's getting 2 or 3, he's not. Uh, he has that history of him in, earlier in his career. But Darius Bowman is certainly a player that you would think, you know, again, at 33, two years removed from a 1,700-yard season, could, could help you. And I, say, I, I would say B.J. Cunningham is a quality receiver as well. But when you get into non-import receivers and things like that, you know, the, the Owls are, are not proven. That, there's no question about that. And, when you, and you, when you stack them up against, you know, a team like Edmonton, you know, or even a team like Hamilton, you know, if you, if you actually stack their receivers up against the best in the league, no, there's, there's a sizable gap in terms of, you know, proven ability. So, you you have a back though there like Sutton, who I think is a quality. I think he's yep. a quality CFL back. Can, could you not run some option wide option the way Doug Flutie used to with with either Pinball Clements or you know other backs that the Argos had at the time? Well, you mean like running like an option where basically what, what kind of play are you describing? Like like a quarterback rollout. It, it can be a run, it can be a pass, it can be a flip to the, to the running back. I think you can. And again, I don't, you know, I, again, I'm not coach football, but I think a lot of those things all come down to timing, right? And, and, and complexity of it. And, you know, if you think of what they're trying to do with Johnny Manziel in four days, and really it was three full practices and a walkthrough, which they kind of went through a long extended walkthrough. 
Yeah, I would think you could do things. I mean, a lot, but, you know, a lot of things that a lot of people think what you want to do with Johnny Manziel is move people away from the line of scrimmage. You know, get your receivers deep because if you can make the defensive backs and the linebackers, you know, move away from the line of scrimmage, this guy has the ability to run the football and run the football effectively on that big field, you know. So that's, you know, I've also heard people say that, that you know, that's more what you want to do with him. But, yeah, he would have the, definitely the ability, as you say, if you rolled him out and you had an option play where you could, you could you know, hand it to, to Sutton or shovel pass it, it would be hard for the defense because they don't know whether Manziel would keep or whether it would be Sutton. Because one thing about Manziel, he ran a lot in college. He ran almost more than the people in the National Football League would like to see him run. But in the CFL, as we know, you know, that game is more encouraged. And I think Manziel does have a lot of potential, you know, if, if they could set things up where he would have the option to go upfield, whether it's on an option play or whether it's by sending receivers deep and, you know, clearing out things underneath where he could really get into open space. And where are the Alouettes this week and how much Manziel will we see? Well, they're in Ottawa, and I think we'll see a lot. Like, I think it, you know, it took three pretty rough quarters to get him out of the game last week. And I think the plan is to get Johnny Manziel as many reps as possible. And unless you think that he's kind of mentally beat up or physically beat up or the play is such that, you know, you're worried that he might get injured, I think you're going to see him play an awful lot here, you know. And, and, and look, I don't think there's a plan B for the Alouettes. They know what plan B looks like, what plan C and what plan D look like. It's not an ideal circumstance for them. It's not an ideal circumstance by any means for Johnny Manziel to try to, you know, prove that he can still play the game at a very high level. But, you know, this is, this is going to be learn and try to get better. And I, think, look, I don't think they'll make the playoffs. I think the Alouettes season right now can be evaluated on how much better Johnny Manziel gets over the next 12 weeks. And then you kind of got to decide where you're going in 2019 when you've got him under contract for at least one more year and who's going to build that team, whether it's going to be the current management or whether you're looking for somebody else. Well, I can't speak for anyone else, but I'm going to tune in again this week because I want to get at least one more look at it. Dave Naylor, thanks for doing this. Hey, my pleasure, Steve. Have a great show. Dave Naylor, TSN Football Insider, available on Twitter at TSN Dave Naylor. We come back, some tennis talk. Mark Masters at the Rogers Cup. Already some... Fascinating things have happened there. Big win for Milos Raonic last night. Daniel Nestor honored uh, for his career. And tonight, Denis Shapovalov on center court. Talk about that with Mark Masters when we come back on Toronto Today. Welcome back to Toronto Today. Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun in for Wheeler Nation. Coming up next at 1 o'clock, the Scott MacArthur Show with Andy McNamara in for Scott Today. That's coming up at 1 and, of course, Overdrive at four, and you never want to miss overdrive. The Rogers Cup tennis tournament. I don't know, and I, I say this all the time, and I've said it year after year after year, and people look at you funny when you do. If you haven't been to the Rogers Cup, you're missing one of the great events of Toronto. If you, I don't care if you're a tennis fan. I don't care if you're a tennis lover. I don't care if you, you don't think it's much of a sport. It's the whole scene it's being there. It's the grounds. It's center court. It's the smaller court. It's the food. It's the ice cream. It's the interactive stuff. To me, it's one of the best days of sport you can spend in the, in the city of Toronto. And, and it's gotten better over the years, of course, with the tennis because the Canadian players have historically gotten so much better. And that, that's been fun and made the tournament a lot more fun as well. And Mark Masters is the tennis reporter for TSN. And he... He's fortunate enough to get to go all over the world and cover the sport. This week he's doing it pretty much from home at York 
University. And Mark Masters joins us now. Good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon. Yes, my my home event too. Were you, were you a York University guy, by the way? Does that is this going back to your school, or is this just? No, no, I'm a Carleton University Raven. So. Okay, well, you know, um, we gotta get, we gotta get that clear off the off the top. I thought you might have been. A, you look like a Mustang to me, but <laughs> but that was my view of it. Um, I appreciate that. Let's start with Daniel Nestor <laughs> because he's being honored this week, and they had the big retirement bash the other night. Uh, how should we look at Daniel Nestor's career? Oh, there's a lot of layers to that. Uh, Certainly, he's one of the greatest doubles players of all time, so get that out of the way right there. I think he's a Hall of Famer. Eight Grand Slams in doubles, a gold medal uh, at the Sydney Olympics for his country. Um, Davis Cup semifinals with Canada a couple years ago. He's done some incredible things in this sport. Um, and so just from a, from a big picture view, uh, generally, I think he's a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest doubles players who ever played. Uh, obviously beating Stefan Edberg in, in the Davis Cup early in his career out in Vancouver when Edberg was number one is one of the great wins in Canadian singles. Uh, you know, even in this new amazing era that still stands as one of the great wins. And what he did as the real torchbearer for a long time on the tour for Canada, giving the hope to young Canadian kids that there is a spot for you if you train and work hard. You can come from this country and, and, and persevere and do well. And certainly listening to what Milos Raonic and Patrick Pospisil and even guys like uh, Denis Shapovalov and Felix Ogiel-Yassin have said about seeing Daniel Nestor as a kid, you know, not just being on tour but winning on tour inspired them. So he's an inspiration to Canadian tennis and, and one of the all-time greats. If, if this comes out the wrong way, I apologize, because every once in a while something comes out of my mouth that I wish I could grab back and pull in. So <laughs> I'm prefacing this before I even begin. How much... Should we care about doubles tennis? Well, that, it's certainly not on the same level as singles, that's for sure. Uh, but when the top players play it, certainly yesterday's match between Dennis Felix and uh, Jokerson, Kevin Anderson and Novak Djokovic out in the grandstand was packed and entertaining. So when the you know when you have the the elite players playing doubles, it's certainly exciting. We don't see that as much because now versus back in the older days. Uh, when Johnny McEnroe and others were, were playing at a high level in doubles because obviously there's more injuries now. It's a more physical sport. The, there's so much more money in the singles. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it certainly isn't something that, that fans are going to care about as much as singles, and that's understandable. But the bottom line is it's still tremendous athletes playing uh, to be the best in the world at, at a high-level event. And so I, I enjoy watching it. I think it still matters. To a degree, uh, and Vashik Possible's are winning the doubles Grand Slam at Wimbledon a couple of years back uh, against the Bryan brothers with Jack Sock was was a tremendous result and something amazing to watch. So uh, I think it matters. Certainly not on the same level as singles, but for me at least, it still matters. Well, it matters the it mattered the most for me, and I was courtside for it. So I guess that when you're there, it certainly takes on a different perspective. For the gold medal in Sydney, yeah. Australia, in 2000, not only did did Nestor and Sebastian Leroux win the gold medal, but they beat the favorite Australians in doing so, the best team in the world at the time. Um, when you look at the 91 wins, 40, 40 with Mark Knowles, 11 different partners, um, does that talk about, because he's won with so many different people, does that talk about the level that Nestor played at and has played at for most of his career? 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at his big rivals over the years, it's been the Bryan brothers who have played together. Twin brothers, one of the greatest teams. But Nestor, to have won slams with different players like Zimanich and Mark Knowles. Uh, he made the finals of the Australian Open even just a few years ago with Stepanek. So he's been able to play at a high level almost with regardless of who he's played with. I mean, certainly you need the right partner and you need to be playing. And that partner needs to be playing well. But Nestor's been a really consistent guy and uh, that, to me, speaks to what he's been able to do more than, than a lot of different things because, you know, the Bryans have played together. I mean, they, they, they have that twin kind of subliminal, subliminal thinking, and uh, Nestor's been able to find that with a whole bunch of different partners. I want to flip for a second to, to Milos Raonic because, to me, he's been a fascinating guy to follow in between his streaks and his body breaking down from... You know, he seems too young to have his body breaking down, but, but, it, but it seems to belie him on, on too many occasions. But here's a guy from basically 2012 right through 2017 who's been right around top 10 most of that time. Um, do we take him for granted? Maybe a little bit. I, I, again, it's maybe his style of play. It's not as... Uh, engaging and entertaining, say, as Dennis with that one-handed backhand that he's got and the energy he brings uh, to try and rile the crowd up into it. But Milos Raonic has, has quietly gone about his business and been one of the more consistent, win-healthy tennis players on tour in the last few years. I mean, rising to number three in the world, that's just on its own an incredible accomplishment. And when he's healthy, he's certainly a contender to make the second week of the majors and a contender to go deep, especially at an event like Wimbledon. So, um, maybe, maybe we have. I mean, he's carried the torch, kind of took it from Daniel Nestor, and 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 has inspired Dennis and Felix in many ways when they were coming up. So, yeah, I mean, maybe we take him for granted a little bit, especially now that there's other Canadian tennis players to do to to follow and to get excited about. But Milos Raonic has still done quite a bit. He was excellent last night, uh, really, really good. And if he plays like that, he's got a chance. To, he's got a decent draw here, and he can really make a run. And I just want to point out that he's an extraordinarily classy guy and he stayed on court after his win yesterday and he took part in the ceremony honoring Anne-Marie D'Amico who of course was one of the victims of the Toronto van attack in April and was a longtime volunteer at this tournament and Milos Raonic took it upon himself went to Tennis Canada said what can we do uh, and he's he's um, you know monetarily helped create a, a scholarship fund that's going to go to a ball kid in Toronto and Montreal to help them pursue higher education each year he was Told this is a, this is how much money we're looking for. He said, "I want to do more." He went to his his sponsors at New Balance. He's got a lifetime deal with them, and he got them involved, and he got Tennis Canada involved, and they launched that last night. So I think he's a thoughtful guy. There's a lot to him that people don't recognize, and he's a great ambassador for the sport and for Canadians. Well, that's great to hear because sometimes he looks like sort of robotic, and I think because he plays that big serve, not move all that well kind of game. He, he comes across sort of as robo-tennis player. So it's nice to see that there's another side to it. And, and perspective, of course, comes in different ways. I looked this up today. Daniel Nestor, at the absolute top of his career when he played singles tennis, was 58th in the world. Yeah. Um, Raonic has been, you know, beyond the, well beyond that for virtually his entire career. Yeah. So it goes to show it. If someone's going to say who's the greatest Canadian tennis player ever, you know, the tendency would be to say Daniel Nestor. But I might make the point that at this stage right now, it's Milos. Well, I mean, singles again, where we can get into the debate about singles and doubles all you want, but what Milos Raonic has done, 
in this era of men's tennis where you're playing, this is the golden age. I mean, you look at what, you know, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Walrenka have been able to do. They're all Hall of Fame. They're all amazing players. Those first three, you know, Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal are going to go down as among the greatest of all time. You know, Djokovic is one back of Sampras. They're probably going to end up with the three most. Well, they already Federer's number one, Nadal's number two, but Djokovic will probably end up number three uh, in terms of the most grand slams won in men's singles. And, and this is who Raonic is competing against, and they've all been in their prime. And one thing people, I think, should recognize about Milos Raonic is this is a guy, I think, who has maximized his his, his physical gifts, and, and he, you know, his, never, his work ethic has never been in question. In fact, some of his coaches in the past have questioned whether he works too hard, and that might lead to... To injuries at times, so I think this is a guy. You, you know, you look at him. Yet last night he was dominant. I thought he won 41 of 48 points on serve, and he said he wasn't happy completely with his serve last night. He felt it could have been more consistent. So um, he's a guy that he 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 does a lot to, to to achieve what he does. His body, it's a bigger body. Maybe he doesn't move as well, but he certainly maximized the gift he has, which is one of the great serves we've ever seen in the game. I don't think everybody. Most people, especially those who don't know tennis very well, realize how hard the sport is on their body. Uh, and I, I go back to Nestor years ago. I used to see him in the same physio clinic. I was doing therapy, and he was telling me that his shoulder was bad and his elbow was bad and his wrist was bad and his knees were bad. And, and this was in the prime of his career. And one of the things with Milos that kind of surprises me is it's not one thing that he's getting hurt with. You know, one time it's a shoulder, and one time it's a back, and one time it's a, it's a leg, and it seems like his injuries are all over the place. Yeah, I mean, he had the quad tear at Wimbledon. He had a wrist injury last year that that pretty much shut him down after he had a first round loss in Montreal. So it seems to mostly be on the right side of his body. I'm not sure if we read too much in that. He's not sure about that, but yeah, I mean, it's not just like he's had a bad back or you know he had bad knees. He's he's you know, he's, he's had a whole whack of different issues, which makes you believe that maybe it's just he's got some bad luck here and it's nothing. Because he, he's tried everything. I mean, he's, he's worked out more in the gym. He's worked out less. He's played more matches. He's played less matches and just trained. But I think what he's done really well of late is he's not letting it mentally get him down as much as he used to. He just has almost come to accept it, and now he understands how to actually play through it. And he can go into a tournament like this where he hasn't played since Wimbledon and put forward a performance against the number 10 seed and David Goffin last night that was in, exceptional, really, in, in, where there's pressure on his hometown crowd where he's only here at once every couple of years. And he's now gotten to the point in his career where he, he gets injured all the time, but at least now he understands what he has to do to put himself in a position to do well even when he doesn't have the match play to back up and, and give him momentum going into a tournament. Talking tennis with TSN's Mark Masters. Mark, when, when the year ended last December and organizations like Canadian Press, and there may have been others, named Denis Shapovalov the Athlete of the Year in Canada, I was one of those, I was a little uncomfortable with the designation. And part of it was because I thought he was a better story at the end of the year than he was necessarily you know, up there with Joey Votto and Sidney Crosby and some of the guys that you would put up for Athlete of the Year. And I think Joey Votto won the Lou Marsh and Shapovalov won the Canadian Press version of the same award. Um, since then, he's kind of struggled to find that exciting spot. What do you look for for Shapovalov tonight, and what do you look for in the tournament? Yeah, this is going to be really fascinating because this is the first time in his young career that he's come into a week with a lot of points to defend. The way the ATP rankings work, of course, it's a 52-week rolling ranking, so whatever he did that this week last year comes off your ranking this year and is replaced 
by your results. So he made the semifinals here last year. That's a tremendous amount of points that will come off his ledger this week. And so he's going to have to, you know, want to win a few matches for sure at the very least to, to mitigate the, uh, the, the drop. If, and maybe, maybe he doesn't drop at all if he can go very far here and go a step further and make the finals or even win this thing. But, um, if you look at how this season has played out, um, he's done well. Certainly another semifinal in Madrid, which is excellent on clay of all, of all surfaces, which really speaks to his potential. But on, when you look at the biggest matches and the three grand slams that he's played, he's lost in the second round of, uh, of all three. Uh, he lost in five sets to Joe Wilford Sanga in Australia, which is, you know, fine. Sanga was ranked ahead of him, but he lost to a lower ranked player in the French Open. Uh, in Martyr and then against Pear, another player ranked below him in the, in the, in the second round of Wimbledon. And in each of those three losses in the second rounds of the Grand Slam, he's led by a set to, to love. So he's, he's blown leads. And maybe that is a learning thing for him. Maybe there's maturity that comes with playing best of fives and realizing how quickly the momentum can change in these matches. But there's definitely been some growing pains this year. I'm not sure if the honeymoon's over, but the expectations are huge this week. And I'll be really intrigued to see how he handles it here because, you know, it's not his first you know, big grand, uh, tournament here in Toronto a couple of years ago. He beat he beat Nick Kyrgios on center court. So he's been on the court before. There's no excuses. He says he feels like he's playing well. And I'll be really intrigued to see if he can come out. He certainly should win tonight. He just beat his opponent, Jeremy Shardy, at Wimbledon in the first round. I'd expect him to play well. Uh, but it will be a really intriguing case study and in how far he's come in terms of managing emotions to see how he does tomorrow, or tonight, rather. Because one of the things that got, at the end of last season, he looked like he was just ready to emerge. And then, if you look at the Grand Slams this year, not a great Australia, not a great French, not a great Wimbledon. Um, so, that the guy that John McEnroe was talking about, you know, he's going to win Grand Slams, I think now we're into that, you know, let's, let's see who he is phase. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a show me what you've done lately, it, like all so many businesses, and He's still just a teenager, so there's so much room for him to grow. He's one of the, the best young players in the world uh, still, regardless of the fact that he hasn't had uh, the breakthroughs at the Grand Slam this year. So uh, it's his first full year as a professional. Uh, so there's going to be things that he's not used to, whether it's being away from home for a long time, whether it's now coming home to his hometown and having all sorts of media requests and sponsor requests and having to try and tune those out. You know, Raonic was talking last night about how he struggled with that early in his career in Toronto, dealing with it. He said, I'm not good with babysitting people and managing people, and you get a lot of requests and people want a piece of you these weeks when you come home. So, again, that's why it'll be intriguing to see uh, how Dennis handles that tonight. And certainly there have been some ups and downs, which is what you, you'd expect. I mean, last summer was amazing. A meteoric rise semis in, in Montreal, fourth round of the U.S. Open after qualifying, uh, and then finishing the year fairly strong. Uh, it was never going to be a straight lineup for him, and he's had growing pains here, and I'm sure there'll be more to come, but I still see that there's the potential there. He's been able to remain fairly healthy, and um, again, let's see what the kid can do this week. Well, Mark, enjoy the week. I hope to see you out there, and enjoy uh, the scene that is York U, because it's one of my favorite places to go in the summer. Yeah, it's awesome. A bit of a maze getting around this uh, if you're not used to the campus, but they've added this Pioneer Village uh, subway stop, and that makes things so much easier uh, to get up here these days. So it's been a good tournament so far. All right, thanks for this, and, and we'll see you throughout the week. Yeah, see you, Steve. That's Mark Masters, TSN's tennis reporter. He gets to go all over the world to cover this stuff. The, the French Open, the Australian, I think he goes to. He goes to Wimbledon. A lot of fun for this guy when he's not covering the Toronto Maple Leafs, which should be a lot of fun this coming season.
Well, that's it for me today. I'm back again tomorrow. I don't know. They must have got desperate two days. They couldn't find people, so they hooked me up for today and tomorrow. The Scott MacArthur Show coming up at 1 o'clock. Andy McNamara in for Scott today. Overdrive after that at 4. Thanks for everybody for listening today. Thanks to Joe Narsa for producing. Steve Eliopoulos behind the glass pushing all the right buttons. We'll be back again tomorrow here on Toronto Today.